Father, we are standing here this morning and we, we realize because we have all lived a lot of life, some of us more than others, we realize there are a lot of things that we can call God in this world. Our possessions, our careers, our families, notably ourselves. We may not use the name, but it's the way that we live our lives. We put ourselves in the center of our universe and everything revolves around us. We put things in front of you, between us and you, and we call them God. This morning, Father, we acknowledge that you are the one true God. We've seen your power, we've seen your glory. But there are a lot of days when we don't see it because we're not looking for it. We're looking at ourselves, we're looking at our circumstances, we're looking at our past, we're looking at our future. We're not looking at you. So Father, if we, if we could this morning... We're asking that we would see you today. We're asking that you would show us your son, Jesus Christ. That we might set self aside, our own desires, our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions. And see what you want us to see. See your kingdom. See your power. See your glory. See the future that you have prepared for us. Father, would you do that this morning? Would you show us very clearly what you have in store for us? Use your word this morning as a roadmap for us that we might go in the way that would honor you. I pray that we would hear your voice above all else here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. It kind of pains me to think about the fact that this is almost 50 years ago, this event that I'm going to share with you this morning, because it happened just before I was born. So you know what that means, right? If you're doing the math, that means I am rapidly approaching the big half-century mark here. Um, But July 20th, 1969, was a good segment of you like me that were not alive then, but there's a few of you that were. (laughs) July 20th, 1969, does anybody know the significance of that date? Yes, ma'am, Neil Armstrong became, (laughs) Neil, Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. And he touched down, it was on TV, which was a minor miracle in itself, I guess, of engineering and technology. He touched down onto the dusty surface of the moon, and he said, this is one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And Neil Armstrong was famous 
for the rest of his life. He lived till 2012. And he was famous for the rest of his life. He lived a full life. He did a lot of things. But everybody knew him as the first man to walk on the moon. What some people don't remember is that when the Eagle lunar module landed on the moon that day, there were two other guys in the module. Buzz Aldrin, who was the second man to walk on the moon about 30 seconds after Neil Armstrong, and Michael Collins, who was the pilot of the module who had to stay on the ship to monitor things while Armstrong and Aldrin were walking around on the moon. Can you imagine being that close and not being able to get out of the module? But his job was to stay in the module, to communicate with Houston, and make sure everything was okay. A few years ago, a lady named Catherine Timish wrote a book called Team Moon. And she recounted all the events that took place that resulted in the Apollo 11 mission, the Eagle module landing on the moon, Armstrong and Aldrin walking on the moon. And she talked about all of the engineers and the scientists and the soldiers and the weather experts and everyone that was a part of that mission. There were 500 seamstresses who designed and built the spacesuit. And actually, as she did her research and poured over all the documents, she counted over 400,000 people who were a part of the Apollo 11 mission. Now, who does everybody remember? Neil Armstrong, because he was the guy that walked on the moon. But there were 400,000 people who made all of that possible. Now this morning we're going to finish our study through the book of Colossians. And it would be very easy for us to skip the last section. The last 11 or 12 verses in Colossians chapter 4. In a few moments we're going to be looking at those verses Paul did something at the end of Colossians that he did in a lot of his letters, and that was he mentioned a few people that he was connected to. And we could skip over them, we could not bother to read them, we could say, hey, it's just a bunch of names and they're all hard to pronounce, so what's the big deal? But I want us to notice this morning as we look at them for a few minutes that these names and this list is much more than that. It's Paul's team. They were his brothers and his sisters. And I think there's some important lessons here for us this morning in regard to team and selflessness and cooperation. And each week as we've taken a little chunk of Colossians to look at it, we've said, what does it mean to be in Christ? Why does this matter? And every week we've made a statement about what it means. And so this is what I want us to think about this morning. It's this, that because we are in Christ, we serve him together. Because we're in Christ, we serve him together. Now let's read these verses and then we'll look at them for a few minutes. Colossians 4 verse 7 says this, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. 
I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my, fa- my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on behalf on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God for i bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in laodicea and in hierapolis luke the beloved physician greets you as does demas give my greetings to the brothers at laodicea and to nympha and the church in her house And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now as we look at that, it's easy to do. It would be easy to overlook that, right? He's just saying hi to these people. He's just saying, hey, say hi to them for me and so on and so forth. But I want you to notice a few significant things here. And then after we do that, we're going to draw some conclusions that I think are important for us. There are 11 people that Paul talks about in this passage. And the first one is Tychicus. Now we could take a little time this morning here and just do a pronunciation lesson that just kind of rolls off the tongue, Tychicus. Actually, Tychicus is the most mentioned guy in this whole list. He's actually talked about five times in the New Testament. He was a significant part of what Paul was doing. And I just want you to notice really quickly, we're going to zip down through these, what Paul says about him. He says he's a beloved brother in verse 7. That speaks to their relationship. He calls him a faithful minister. He was somebody that Paul could rely on. And then he calls him a fellow servant, someone that Paul was able to work with and share responsibility with. And Tychicus delivered this letter. He was the guy that brought the letter with him and made sure that the Colossians got it. We also find out, if we're reading in the book of Ephesians, that Tychicus was the one who delivered Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. Paul used him. The other times we see him mentioned, Paul sent Tychicus to Crete, which is where Titus was. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know there's a book a little bit later on called Titus. And Paul sent Tychicus, had him fill in for Titus, so that Titus could come and spend some time with Paul. And he could teach him and encourage him and they could work together and encourage and strengthen and challenge each other. He did the same thing for Timothy, filled in for him so that he could spend some time with Paul. Paul was certainly used greatly of God to plant these churches, but what I want you to notice as we see Tychicus is that he didn't do it alone. Paul's the one whose name we know, right? Paul wrote all the books, Paul planted all the churches, but he didn't do it alone. 
I want you to see in verse 8 what he also says here. He says that he may encourage your hearts. That's why Paul was sending him with the letter. Tychicus had a gift. He had a gift of encouragement. And that's probably why he and Paul spent so much time together. You can imagine Paul out on the road, traveling all the time, never staying in any place more than sometimes just a few weeks or a few months, once in a while, a couple of years here or there. But he was always moving, always traveling. Paul didn't have a family. We know that. As you can imagine, there were times when he got discouraged. Tychicus had the gift of encouragement. And he shares that with the Colossians. I'm sending Tychicus so that he can encourage you. They needed it. And we need it too, don't we? Are there any times in your life, any days, when you say, Boy, I wish somebody would encourage me. I wish somebody could remind me why I'm doing this. Why I'm making the choices I am. Why I'm saying no to all the things that the rest of the world is saying yes to. Why am I doing this? We need to encourage each other. And strengthen each other, and that's what Tychicus would do. In verse 9, we see Onesimus. Onesimus is mentioned a little bit more in the book of Philemon, but what we do know is that he was a runaway slave. He had broken his bond with his master, who was Philemon, who lived in Colossae, and he took off. He left him. He deserted him. But providentially, he came into contact with Paul. And he came to Christ. And notice that Paul says now, he is a beloved brother. He is a valued member of Paul's team. And that reminds us that our past does not have to determine our future. You know what I realize? As I live my life and I interact with all of you guys and other people that God brings across my path, I realize that we all have a past. We all have a way that we were. And now, for those of us who are in Christ, we have a way that we are. And the way we were doesn't have to determine how we are. What we used to do doesn't have to determine what we do now or what we do in the future. And Onesimus is a good example of that. In verse 10, we see Aristarchus, who was in prison with Paul, apparently. We we learn about Mark and Barnabas. Barnabas was one of Paul's closest friends and co-workers in the faith. And one time when they were working, he brought Mark along. And he said to Paul, he said, hey, this is my nephew, Mark. And I want him to come with us and help us. And Paul said, okay. And so they went along. But we read in Acts chapter 12 that at some point something happened and Mark deserted them. He said, I can't do this anymore. And he took off and he left Paul and Barnabas in the lurch. And that caused a big problem between Paul and Barnabas. And they ended up going their separate ways. And they didn't serve together for a while because it was such a problem. But it's interesting to see here that whatever that was, whatever had come between them has been healed now because he recommends Mark and Barnabas to them. In verse 11 we see justice another Jewish friend that worked with Paul and traveled with him and encouraged him. In verse 12, we see Epaphras, who we learn in chapter 1 of Colossians. I remember Tim mentioning it as he got us started several weeks ago, that Epaphras was the one who started the Colossian church. He was the one that brought the gospel to the city of Colossae. And now he was with Paul, and he was helping Paul. But I want you to notice what it says about Epaphras. He greets you 
verse 12, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. The word struggling there means agonizing. It means striving. It's actually a word that was used in this culture to describe what soldiers did when they were fighting in a war. Why did Paul use that word? I think Paul used that word because he realized that we are fighting battles every day. Epaphras knew that the people in Colossae were fighting a battle to be the people that God wanted them to be. And Epaphras was so burdened about that, he was so concerned about them, that he, it was like he was fighting his own little spiritual war on their behalf before God. He was struggling for them. He was striving for them. That God would make them the people that he wanted them to be. I think he chose that word perfectly because it is a battle. It is a war. Do you know what I spend a lot of my time doing every week? Talking with people who have a desire to do what's right but are struggling with the follow-through. Nod your head if you know what that feels like, right? Because it's a war. Because guess what, friends? This world does not want you to change everything about your life because you are in Christ, like we're talking about in Colossians. Satan doesn't want you to change the way that you conduct your relationships. He doesn't want you to change the way you do your job. He doesn't want you to change the way that you raise your children. It's a war out there. It's a battle. And Epaphras was struggling for them. He was contending for them. So that they would be, notice what it says there in verse, thir- uh, verse 12, that they would be fully assured in all the will of God. That is, fully, fully convinced of the truth and living it. Do you know what it feels like to know the truth but not be sure about it? To know what you should do, but not be fully convinced that it's what you want to do, or it's what you're going to do. It was the same 2,000 years ago as it is today. I want you to know, one of the most important things that can happen in the life, in the body, in the family of this church is that those of us who are fully assured, fully convinced in the truth, and the desire to do what's right, that we struggle, that we contend, that we fight for our brothers and sisters, that they might be fully assured and fully convinced as well. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are a mature Christ follower and you are all in and you are fully convinced that living for God is the right thing to do, I hope that you are struggling in prayer for the rest of us. It is so necessary. Because it's a war out there. It's a war on our souls. Verse 13, we see that Paphras also served in Laodicea and Hierapolis, which were two other little cities that were close by. In verse 14, we see Luke, who was a doctor, 
One of the disciples, you know, wrote the book of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And he traveled with Paul quite a bit. And I think very practically so. God put Luke in Paul's life to care for him physically. And all the wear and tear of all the travel and so much time that Paul spent in prison. I don't know if you know too much about first century Roman prisons, but they're not very much like 21st century American prisons. If you think about Paul in prison and you're thinking about him sitting on his bunk with a a desk and some bookshelves and uh, a toilet beside his bed and a sink to wash up in the morning and a great room to go and have meals and cable TV and all that kind of stuff, you're getting the wrong impression. Because first century Roman prison was usually a cave or a dungeon below the ground. It was damp. It was cold. It probably had rats in it. It was probably infested with lice. And they didn't provide meals. In fact, that's why if you read the New Testament and you read what Paul is saying, oftentimes he'll say, send so-and-so or thank you for sending them to minister to my needs. That's why these people were there with Paul while he was in prison, to make sure that he had food, to make sure that he had some amount of clothing. That's where Paul was. That's the prison that he was in. And Luke was with him, caring for him physically. Demas was also part of the crew at this point, but if we keep reading in the New Testament into 2 Timothy, we read that Demas turned away. It says, Demas loves this world too much, and he has left us. Verse 15, we see Nympha, who was a sister in Christ and hosted a church in her home. You notice at this point there have been four churches listed here. Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and the one in Nympha's home. And even then, at this time, God was working in many different places. He wasn't just working in Colossae, but in many different places. In verse 16, Paul challenges them to share the word, the truth they'd been given. These letters were circulated. Epaphras was going to take it to the people in Colossae. And he says, after you get done there, make sure you run it over to Laodicea, read it for them. Make sure you get what's been read in Laodicea and bring it back over to you and share the truth that I've given to you. In verse 17, we see Archippus, who needed a responsibility to fulfill his responsibility or needed a reminder to fulfill his responsibility before God and then in verse 18 Paul says he personalizes the letter with his signature this is significant because many people speculate that Paul's eyesight wasn't that great and that he probably didn't actually write these letters with his own hand he probably dictated them to other people who wrote them down but Paul signed it himself to authenticate it So what do we learn from Paul's closing statements here? I want to just share three thoughts with you. First of all, God's work is not limited by geography. There are four churches mentioned here in this passage, four churches in that area that God was working in in all these times, and these people were moving in and out from here to there to all these places, making sure that people had the truth. Why does that matter to us? Well, it matters to us because God is at work not just here at Mossbrook Church. 
God's not just concerned about what happens in our midst. He is concerned about that. He is challenging us. He wants us to grow. He wants us to reach out. But God is at work all around us. Here in the Oxford Hills, there are other churches who are teaching the truth of God's Word. In the state of Maine, there are hundreds of churches where God is at work. In the United States of America, there are tens of thousands of churches where the truth is being preached. At this very moment, there are probably tens of thousands of churches who are doing the same thing that we are. They're opening God's word and they're asking him to lead them. And around the world, it's easy for us to think about this place because this is where we are. But God's work is not limited by that. God's kingdom is not just what happens in this room. It's far broader than that, and He is at work all around us. The second thing I want us to see that we learn from Paul's statements is that God uses teams to do His work. Paul never worked alone. He had all of these people who are constantly walking with him, who are constantly sharing the load, constantly sharing the responsibility. You know this if you've been here at all very much in the last few years as we've taught through all of these passages, that even Jesus did not walk alone, did he? He had 12 disciples that were with him. If you read through the book of Matthew, you'll see that he called the 12 disciples. In chapter 10, he commissioned them and he sent them out. And just a couple of chapters later, you know what he did? He commissioned 70 more people. And he paired them up two by two, and he sent them out. And here at Moss Brook, everything that we do is in team. God calls us to work together in teams, and he uses teams to accomplish his work. The child care team. If you're a part of that, you know that if there was ever a job that you don't want to do alone... It's that one. Can you imagine being in there in that room with 10 little babies? The child care team, the greeters, the hospitality team, the setup guys, the band, the kids' ministry team, the audio team, the video team. Even our teaching we do in team. Why is that? We do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, when we share the responsibility, it's lighter. And we work together in team because there are times when we need to be ministered to as well. If there's only two people on the child care team, guess what that means? They're in there every week. And when do they get ministered to? If there's only two people on the kids' team, what happens? They're in there every week. If I speak every week, what happens? I don't get taught. If everybody's up on the stage that's in the band every week, what happens? They're always ministering and serving and never being ministered to. And God chooses to work in team and uses teams to accomplish His work. 
They also serve together in teams so that everyone can exercise their gift. Guess what? I'm not the only person in this body that can teach. Catherine is not the only person in this body that can sing. Steve is not the only person in this body that can play the drums. Might be the only person that can play the jingling Johnny. We're going to have to work on that one a little bit. But everybody gets to use their gifts and to exercise their gifts. And guess what happens when we exercise our gift? We get stronger. We get stronger. And what we don't want is a lot of people sitting around and their muscles all getting atrophied from lack of use. We want them to be strengthened. Thirdly, we realize that team members have various skills and abilities. We see that in this list of people that Paul talks about in Colossians. Some teach, some encourage, some pray, some host, some lead, some listen, some care. And guess what, guys? Those things are all important. We can't take any one of those and say that they don't matter. I'm a child of the 80s. And I cut my basketball teeth in 1982 watching Michael Jordan rise up from 17 feet on the wing and hit that jumper over the Georgetown defender for the North Carolina Tar Heels to win the 1982 NCAA basketball championship. Thrilling stuff. Right? It was for me. And instantly, I thought, I don't know who this guy is, but I love what I'm seeing. And I became a Michael Jordan fan, and he tore up the NCAA for two more years, and he went to the NBA, and people still didn't believe he could do it. He was picked third in the draft, in the 1984 draft. And he went to the Chicago Bulls, and he was an instant superstar taking over games, scoring 35 points a game, jumping over everyone. But he didn't win a championship for six seasons. You know why? Because one superstar cannot win an NBA championship. He needed a team, and it took six seasons to get the right team members in the right place. And then they rattled off six championships. Why? Because Michael Jordan was a superstar? No, because they had a team. And on that team, everyone knew their responsibility and everyone fulfilled their role. And that's the same for us, folks. We can't have one superstar, two superstars, three or four people who are all in, and everyone else who is sitting on the sidelines. We need everyone together, understanding their role and fulfilling their responsibility. And that's how you win. That's how you accomplish what God has for us. But I want to just take the last five minutes we have this morning and get just a little bit more personal 
Because you are in Christ, you are made to serve him together with us. If you're here this morning and you are a Christ follower, you are made to serve him together with us. God uses teams of people to do his work. And teams are made up of individuals. And every individual on the team has a role to play. So guess what that means? It means you matter. Every one of you matters. No one is exempt. No one is unnecessary. And this is not just a rah-rah, hey, you matter, you're a good person, power of positive thinking. You literally do matter. Because every single one of you who knows and loves Jesus Christ is a unique blend, a unique mix of gift and personality and ability. And you bring something to this team that we need. There's no one else like you. Now you probably heard that a few times in a negative way. But God intends it to be very positive. There is no one else like you. There's no one else that has the same blend of gift and ability and personality. You matter. Here's a second personal thing I want you to know. If you don't engage, the whole team is affected. If you choose not to serve... If you choose not to use your gifts and abilities, then something goes undone. And all of the things that we should be doing as a church, as part of our mission to reach people and help them mature into reproducing Christ followers that, they aren't, that we aren't doing, all the things that need to be done that we aren't doing, they aren't happening Because someone is not engaged. Someone's not fulfilling their role on the team. Just think about this for a second. On a typical Sunday, counting our children, there are about 300 people here. If everyone that comes to this church on a semi-regular basis, came on the same Sunday, which that never happens, we're never all here. But if everybody that comes occasionally came to this church at once, there would easily be over 400 people if everybody was here. Why are things left undone? Why are some needs not being met? It's because someone is not engaged. Here's the third thing. 
You don't have to be alone. You don't have to be alone. So there's a whole group of us who are engaged. We are in the fight. We are sold out to this mission. And you're a part of that. If you're a Christ follower, you are a part of that. And you don't need to be alone. We all have a past. We talked about that a few minutes ago. We all have pain. We all have fears. I understand that. And it's very easy to look inside and look at our past or look at our fears or look at our pain and say, listen, you can talk all you want up there about how I'm not alone, but you don't know what's in here. You don't know what what hurt I have. You don't know what I'm dealing with because you haven't been with it. You haven't been through it. You know what? You may be right. I may not have been through what you've been through or what you are going through right now. That is true. But we all wrestle with something, and here's the choice. You can either wrestle with what you're wrestling with alone, or you can engage and join the team, and we can walk this road together. We can challenge each other. We can encourage each other. Last week we talked about the fact that there's no such thing as casual Christianity. Well, I want you to understand there's no such thing as solitary Christianity either. So here's my challenge. What about you? What's your part? What are you doing in the body, in the family? How are you contributing to this church and this town fulfilling its mission and caring for its people and reaching its neighbors? Instead of saying, why isn't this happening or why isn't that happening, ask yourself, why am I not doing it? Or is God asking me to do it? If I'm noticing it, is he asking me to do it? My challenge to you this morning, friends, is to come together. To come with us on this journey, to engage in what is happening around you so that we can do it together. To get up and get moving. Instead of talking, start doing. Tim and I sit often and, and uh, he's not here this morning so I'll say this and you can tell him I said this. And It's not just about him, it's both of us. We sit sometimes and we talk and we scratch our heads and we say, how do we do this? What's the best way to do this? How are we going to care for three or four hundred people? How are we going to reach this town? How are we going to do all the things that we know that God wants us to do as a body? What should we do? And we talk about it, and we pray about it, and we agonize over it. And do you know what? The answer always comes back to the same place. More people engaged. More leaders, more carers, more teachers, more prayers. 
It always comes back to the same thing. It comes back to you. Working with us and doing together what God has called us to do. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as we close our service. We're going to sing a song together that challenges us in this regard. And my prayer is just over the next couple of minutes as we sing this, that you will just ask God what it is that He is asking you to do this morning as we accomplish this mission together. We're involved in this mission because you have placed us here. And we acknowledge this morning before you that this is bigger than us. This is more than us in every way. Not only is it about more than the Oxford Hills and more than Moss Brook, it's about this whole world and your purpose and plan for the world. And it's bigger than us in that we don't have the resources to do it. We don't have the time, we don't have the energy, we don't have the money, we don't have the ability But because of Christ, we can fulfill this mission that you've given us with his strength, with his resources, with his energy, with his ability, working through us and the power of your Holy Spirit. Because we are in him, which has been the whole message of this book. And so, Father, as we leave here today, I pray that we will not soon forget what we have heard that your voice would ring in our ears and resonate through our hearts and our souls and that we would be careful and ready to hear your voice to us as individuals, that we will engage, that we will fulfill the responsibility you've given us. Help us to, to find those places to be willing to submit ourselves to you and to get involved in what you're doing here in this community. We pray for nothing more and nothing less than your will, Father. We pray that the kingdom would grow, that the church would expand, that the name of Jesus would be honored here, and we humbly thank you for using us to do it. In Christ's name, amen. Have a great week, folks.